Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for songs that need to be flipped over in the middle. We're going to start today off, like usual, with a little bit of trivia. All right, I'm going to start with our audio trivia today, and our I've got a title for this one. It's called One Nation Under a Locked Groove. Basically, what I did is I took 10 famous locked grooves, and for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what a locked groove is, is at the end of a side of a record, uh, some artist put in a groove that has no exit, so that snippet of sound plays over and over and over until you manually have to lift off the tone arm. And so there are thousands of these, but I took 10 of the most famous of them and I gave you about 10 seconds to listen to it. And you just have to tell me either the artist or the album. I don't care. Uh, just indicate that you know what it is. And I also am going to give you the year because it's a little tricky. Some of these are hard. So I figured the year might give you at least a little clue. So I just need the artist or the album based on the locked groove clip. Okay. All right. I'm going to say the clip number and the year. Clip one is from 1967. Clip two is also from 1967. Clip three is from 1969. Play me again. 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 Clip four, 1970. Clip five, 1975. Clip 6, 1978. Clip 7, 1979. Clip 8 is from 81. Clip 9 is from 1997. And the final clip, clip 10, 2014. What do you think, Joe? You got a few of those? I feel I feel pretty good about three of them, and two of them I'm gonna guess on based on the years more than anything else. And knowing that it, one of my guesses, I know that that band had 
an album that ended with a locked groove, but I, the year doesn't sound quite right to me. Okay, well, we'll see how you do. Locked grooves are, are really cool. I've been reading a lot about them. One of the albums we're going to talk about today famously had a locked groove, and it may or may not come up on this, uh, but uh, no, it, it did. It did. I would, I'm, I I'm hoping that it did, <laughs> <laughs> because that's one of the ones I felt pretty good about. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't do that to you. Yeah, it's definitely on there. Good luck with that. We're going to play them all over again at the end of the show, and uh, you guys will uh, get another chance to guess, and we'll let you know the answers. All right, I'm going to do the next quiz, and I'm going to give you a song title, and I want you to tell me over under whether the song has 40 unique words or not. (laughs) It's like a Dr. Seuss quiz. It is. I was actually going to intro it with the green eggs and ham story, but... (laughs) That's pretty good. Pretty good. Okay, so 40 unique words. Yeah. It doesn't have more or less than none of them are exactly 40. Okay. This is great. All right. I love it. All right, let's do it. Okay. Let's do the Beatles song, Her Majesty. I'm going to say under. It is. It's 34 words. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, I was counting in my head. It's only 17 17 seconds long. (laughs) Played it in my head. Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door. I'm going to say under? It's exactly 40. I lied. I didn't know that I wasn't going to do that. You son of a bitch. (laughs) Are they words he stole from a Japanese poet? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Nick Drake, Pink Moon. Under? It is. It's only 24. Yeah, there's only... It's it's really short. Pink, 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 moon. Okay, so, so far we've had under equal under. Okay. Lindsey Buckingham, Holiday Road. <laughs> Do you remember it? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm counting in my head. Movie? Oh yeah. It should be over under 40 syllables in road in that one. <laughs> I'm going to say under again. It is. It's only 22. I honestly thought when I did that one, I was like, it's probably worth about nine words. All right. Are you ready for the next one? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. The next one is the English language version of Downtown by Petula Clark. I'm going to say over. It is. It's 119 words. Wow. The next one is After Hours by The Velvet Underground. Oh, I think that's over. It is. 76. Yeah, because there's the dark party bar, shiny Cadillac cars. All right. The next one is Stage Fright by The Band. Ooh. I'm going to go over again. It's 128. Oh, good. All right. Other than that. Dylan won, which you lied to me about. I am 100% on this quiz so far. You are doing very well. All right, next one is, and you can use either version. There are two. There's the Carpenter, uh, sorry, there's the Carpenters, there's Delaney and Bonnie, and then there is also Sonic Youth with the song Superstar. Superstar. It's got to be over. It is. 60. Yeah. Pretty close. Not many. I know. What about Inagata DeVita? Does Inagata DeVita 
do they each count separately or is it one one term? Inagata Devita is one word. Under. 34. Yes. Yep. How about you two's It's a Beautiful Day? I don't know it. I mean, I know that it's a beautiful day, but I don't know the... I'm going to say under. It's under. That's the only reason I would have picked it. It's 28. Wow. How about something like You Are So Beautiful, like Joe Cocker or Ray Charles? Or Kenny Rogers, your, your pal. <laughs> Ooh. I'm trying to remember the verses, what like what a verse is, and I don't. I'm going to say under again. It is under with 31. Wow. All right. I'm on a, I'm on a roll. You're killing it. So you want to be a rock and roll star. I'm going to say over. It is. It's 84. Okay. Phew. All right. The next song is Two States by Pavement. I'll say under. It is. It's only 14 words. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? No verse. No verse. 40 million daggers, but no verse. The next one is Hot Freaks by Guided by Voices. Hmm. It's really short, but he tends to say a bunch of stuff in his songs. I don't think you're going to trick me. I'm going to go over. 66. Nice. Ooh, you are on fire. Yeah, this is my best quiz ever. Next one is Zigzag Wanderer by Captain Beefheart. Mmm, that's a tough one. I'm going to say under. 61. Dang, missed. Finally missed. We are going to go out with a bang. Okay. This is Smog's Prince Alone in the Studio. Oh, it's so short. It is. Uh, there's a line about all the girls waiting for him to come down. I'm going to go ahead and say, I think you're going to try to trick me. I'm going to say it's more. It's 43. Yes. Real close. About Nailed as close it. as you can get. Nailed and the, the line is, the girls thought they were going to be able to have sex with him. They wore their special underwear. Yes, it's, it's the special underwear that put it over. <laughs> All right. Good job. I think you only missed one, and I'm not going to count the Bob Dylan one. No, that shouldn't count against me. Enjoyed that quiz thoroughly, and I did good on it. Yeah, you did really well. I like ones where I get a 50% chance of getting it right. All right, you ready to move into this episode's Turntable Talk? I am. Let's do it. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind Somewhere in the fading recesses of my mind, I have a foggy recollection of an interview with Husker Du that I saw or read somewhere. The band was talking about their blistering early live performances. The trio made a point to play so loud, so fast, and to never ever take a pause between songs, no matter what. Feedback screeching and pounding drum thuds would take the place of silence where applause and mindless banter would potentially dwell. This was a purposeful choice. They wanted to hold the audience's complete attention and make them make up their own minds about their music. The constant wall of ear-obliterating distortion prevented onlookers from having a moment to turn to their friends and asking what they thought. They wanted everyone to make up their own minds. 
no outside opinions, thoughts, or contamination. While it is not an exact one-to-one comparison, single-song albums serve a similar function. By creating a singular focal point of the listening experience, artists demand and retain full attention. The sheer will of force to have a single song glass through two sides of a record, or even onto multiple records, drives home the message. Beyond an artistic statement of freedom, which undoubtedly single-track albums definitely are, the relentlessness holds the listener hostage. No time to escape, no pause, no breath. Today we will examine the messages that were delivered by seven of the most famous and some equally infamous single-track records. The emotional tension that went into making them, the strife that went into releasing them, and the waves that were made by listening to them. Each with a message beyond their declaration of musical independence. A New York legend aggressively rewriting the boundaries of popular music. An eclectic soundscapist unraveling the seeming destruction of the medium of music. An Afrobeat icon illuminating the political and social unrest around him. A Krautrocker's exercise in boredom relief. A jazz composer completely undoing the constraining rules of his genre. An artist reflecting on decay, death, and the world burning all around him. A metal band proving monotony and momentum are as critical to sound as dynamics. The collective sound of these records are full, undefinable parallels. Challenging and inviting, simple and complex, from furious to melancholic, anxious to gleeful, structured loops and fractured chaos, the only common bond was a total disregard for what had been done before. Today, the single-song albums that changed the landscape and soundscape of music. I can declare without hyperbole that Metal Machine Music is my favorite record. By no means is it the best record I own. In fact, it's not even the best Lou Reed record I own by a long shot. It's a record I've maybe only listened to six times in my life, including once for this episode. And even then, I had to stop and start several times before I could complete the descent into the black depths of feedback. Sometimes listening to it is physically painful. Not just uncomfortable or unsettling or throbbing, but it hurts me. It gives me a headache. However, as an artifact of rock and roll, as an example of the vinyl record as an art experience, as a purposeful commentary that creates something so far beyond cardboard, holding a plastic disc that's etched with grooves and makes sounds, there is nothing greater than Lou Reed's hour-long sonic disregard to human ears. The rock music apocalypse. It's what you will hear the moment the bomb hits. The album is more lies than truths at this point, more legend than facts. Its origin is as shrouded in mystery as is its purpose, if it has a purpose at all. Even 45 years after the record's release, I still have no more of an idea if Metal Machine music was meant as a hate crime or a joke or a symphony or an ode to meth or possibly even a legitimate work of vision, or a legal maneuver, or a meaningless concoction of a madman, or a combo of all of this. For Ryan and I, who love to speculate, debate, research, and theorize about music, 
Metal Machine music is full of infinite possibilities. Even today, people can't seem to understand or explain the record. Some argue that it was the rightful successor of avant-garde music and the birth of noise rock. Others maintain that it was the finest prank that was ever perpetrated on a record label or maybe a fan base. How is it that almost half a century later, a single song, though song might be too generous a word, sliced equally across four discs, still confounds and polarizes? Metal Machine Music is the greatest, worst record ever. In 1975, Lou Reed wanted to make the ultimate guitar solo, or so he claims. In a loft space in the Garment District at 5 in the morning, he placed two open-tuned guitars facing each other, plugged them into amps at maximum volume. The ensuing feedback would vibrate the opposing guitar strings, creating more harmonics and more feedback, and these interactions would change and shift the sound, creating further loops of sound. Reed experimented with tunings, the setups, the tones, the space between the guitars. Each impacted the sound and created new waves of piercing reverberations. The unfortunate tape machine that had the task of recording the waves of destructive audio was manually sped up and slowed down by Lou. This is how metal machine music was actualized. The ridiculously long list of instrumentation, sound filters, and technical specifications on the back cover of the record was complete bullshit, or so he claims. No one truly knows, as no one besides Lou was there. And calling Lou Reed an unreliable narrator is like calling Captain Ahab an enthusiastic sports fisherman. Metal machine music is an auditory death march. Feedback and distortion that is a looping, grinding, whining, whirling, squealing, shuddering, unending, undulating wall of sound. On first listen, it is unmatched in its offensiveness. Remember the scene in Jaws where the crazy boat captain runs his fingers down a chalkboard? Imagine Lou Reed running 10,000 fingers down 10,000 chalkboards that have been amplified, mic'd up, and had their volume pushed into the red. And then drawn out for 64 minutes, 11 seconds. Not white noise, all noise, all crammed together into too confined a space. Like the noise itself is claustrophobic. Noise that feels like being trapped in a cave with the notion of light so far removed from your location that brightness seems like an impossibility. Upon its initial release, rumors persisted that the disc would cause epilepsy or other brain dysfunctions upon repeated listens. We couldn't find any scientific evidence to back up this claim that metal machine music causes uh, seizures. Of course, we didn't find any to refute it either. Despite all this, or maybe because of it, the more I listen to metal machine music, the more beautiful it sounds to me. But we'll get back to that in a minute. We think it's important to step back a little bit and think about Reed's progression as an artist and how we get to this empty loft where the sullen, meth-fueled feedback derby is occurring. Reed is a complicated guy. Brushing shoulders with the most avant-garde parts of the downtown scene and putting out pay-for-hit records at Pickwick. Reed has always been straddling the line between music as art and music as commerce. 
He cited in later interviews the influence of artists like Lamont Young, Ornette Coleman, Carl Heinz Stockhausen, and Yanis Zanakis, all of whom experimented with unrestrained noise or electronics. He was masterful in his handling of both delicate, beautiful sentiments as well as the most destructive aspects of human nature and depravity. He balanced art and rock like no one before or since. A rock star with highbrow aesthetics that demanded to be taken seriously. Or an artist that could write perfect pop songs. After the Velvets, Lou had a tumultuous start to his solo career. He had a wacko sort of hit with Walk on the Wild Side, which gave him some credibility as a potential glam rock star, until he followed it up with the glum bomb of an album in Berlin. Still, live Velvet's albums and Rock and Roll Animal did well, and he was a legitimate commercial rock and roll presence. He finally reached peak success with the highest charting album of his career in Sally Can't Dance, seriously, which hit the top 10 and stayed 14 weeks in the top 200. He was as close to a star as he had ever been with one of the most forgettable albums of his career. So here is where the legends about metal machine music come into play. Lou Reed, who spent a decade having some critical but no commercial success, is at the precipice of his career. RCA is putting pressure on him to get another album out to capitalize on the success of Sally. The first legend of the album was that it was put out to get out of the restrictive contract with RCA. Lou has both confirmed and denied this. He's gone on record that this was a fuck you to label execs and fans who wanted another walk on the wild side. He's also said that there is no truth to the fact that he did this as a gesture or a contractual obligation to the record company. In 2007, he is quoted as saying, I wouldn't want you to buy a record that I didn't really like, that I was just trying to do a legal thing with. I, I wouldn't do something like that. The truth is that I really, really, really loved it. Of course, he's also said that anyone who gets to side four is dumber than I am. And because we have gotten to side four on multiple occasions, we have no idea what any of that means. <laughs> Either way, the record was submitted to RCA. Reed has said that the president of the company was on his side, but that the issue was that it was supposed to be released under the Red Seal classical imprint, but instead was released as a rock album with a very rock and roll album cover, with Lou looking very Lou, complete with blonde hair and sunglasses, with a steel facade behind him, and all sorts of technical jargon weirdness and veiled threats on the cover and in the liner notes. My favorites being, most of you won't like this, and I don't blame you at all. It's not meant for you. Or, my week beats your year. Lou's weeks still beat our years, even today. Hell, even the subtitle of the record, the Amin Beta Ring, was so batshit pretentious, it was really hard to not feel like Lou was laying on the sarcasm with the subtlety of a Billy Joel lyric. And then there was the length of it all. 64 minutes, 11 seconds. Four sides, each a perfect 1601 in length. Well, except for side D. Lou went ahead and demarcated that label with 1601 infinity sign. The last breath of the record is a lock groove, which revolves on your turntable forever, or until you get up from your chair and manually lift up your tone arm. Reed would later claim the idea for the lock groove grand finale came from a question Andy Warhol once made to him. Why does a record have to end? When Warhol heard this album, he asked Reed, why does that record have to begin? 
I think we need to stop here for a moment. <laughs> okay. Because I have a little bit more faith in our listeners than maybe you do. <laughs> We've listed some times for this album. I think 1601 times 4 does not equal 64 minutes 11 seconds. So how long is this record sans locked groove? Basically, none of the sides are 1601. They're just labeled 1601. They're all around 16 minutes. But the actual time, if you actually time it out with a stopwatch, which you should not do, is 64 minutes, 11 seconds. Okay, thank you. I just wanted to make sure that everybody's aware of that we are we know <laughs> that there's an inconsistency there. <laughs> and it's Lou's fault, not ours. If you, if you multiply 1600 times 4 and then round up 7 seconds, it's perfect. Truth be known, had the record actually been marketed as classical, where avant-garde work was more appreciated and accepted, the historical perspective might have been more generous to read. As an innovation of droning or embracing of chaotic musical non-theory, he might have been understood or even studied. However, his own flippant attitude ensured to the general public and critics that the album was an open declaration of hostility and one worthy of being reviled. Nonetheless, it sold well. It was, after all, Lou Reed. Over 100,000 copies initially, making it the best-selling noise album of all time. And then people heard it. And it was returned to record shops in droves. Again, another legend was that Metal Machine Music is the most returned album of all times. Record stores pulled them from shelves. It was allegedly off the market in three weeks, with many stores vowing to never, ever sell Lou Reed records at their establishment again. I wonder if there's a way now to look that up, because there weren't enough copies made for it to any longer be like the most returned record ever. Maybe by as a percentage of those pressed? I have no idea. Like, do they get returned to the store and then do they get sent back to the company, you would assume? I think so. That's what you're supposed to do. In record stores, at least that's what we were always supposed to do. Yeah, but if if you know anything from creating this podcast, it's that record labels are totally shady on numbers and how they dispose of things and stuff like that. I don't think there's any way you could actually tell what the number was. I was just, just trying to put that together because there weren't that many made. Do you have an original copy? I think so, yeah. I do too. I mean, it's not like the rarest record... Like, I wouldn't go into a record shop expecting to see it, but it wouldn't, like, floor me if I did see it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been surprised by seeing it. So, all that to say, and I know that's anecdotal, I don't think it's, you know, it's it's not impossible. People must have bought it and hung on to it. Some people really love Lou Reed. You know, we love Lou Reed. Yep. I know that my brother kept his copy. Yeah. And he listened to it quite a bit. Didn't you say your brother kind of did, like, a... Had his own thing with it? Yeah, I found out very similar to how Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon is played by some people during The Wizard of Oz. My brother would line up metal machine music to Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which was one of his favorite movies, and and mine as well. And he would play it through, and it matched up really well. So now I can't wait to try that. It's much shorter than Metropolis, but I think the lock groove probably takes care of that. (laughs) It probably does. (laughs) It's technically a lot longer. When are you supposed to line it up? I think just from the beginning, but I'll have to check with Eric 
who was the person who told me about that. I had never known that he had done that. So That, that is so great. That is the yeah. coolest thing. It seems like something that could really take off. Yep. Everybody should be doing that. Yep. Just pop some popcorn, gather the family around, put on your copy of Metal Machine Music, and fire up the old VHS. It does. Now that we've like gone back and listened to it yet again, it really does sound like a score for a terrifying science fiction movie. It's like if you teak take the the peak moments of like horror movies like back in the horror soundtrack episode we talked about that the nightmare machine where it has just screeching like this punctuated stabbing sound it's like if it was all that like for for an hour i think really he suffered from being a pop star i really think in a different context, this would have been seen as a whole different record. And I do think he actually cared about that as much as he goes back and forth on that. I do think he actually cared about what he was doing because it was innovative in a lot of ways. Yeah, I don't doubt that he thought it was a very experimental album that he genuinely wanted to release as an avant-garde release. The music press was even baffled by it. That puzzlement soon turned to ire. Rolling Stone declared it to be the worst album by a human being. (laughs) I don't know what they were comparing that to. (laughs) And that was one of the nicer things written about it. Famously, there were two positive reviews, or at least two not horribly negative reviews. The man Reed would later declare to be a toe fucker in one of his many, many cranked up monologues on Live Take No Prisoners, Robert Christow, said of the record, Lou's answer to environments has certainly raised the consciousness in both the journalistic and business communities. Though it is a blatant rip-off, it is not. Philistine Cavill's, to the contrary, totally unlistenable. The other was the tongue-in-cheek, but also probably completely honest review by Lou's biggest frenemy rock journalist, Lester Bangs. Now, we cover the majestic rivalry of Reed and Bangs in one of our early episodes, but Bangs wrote an apologist masterpiece for Metal Machine Music in Cream in 1976 called The Greatest Album Ever Made. In a fashion that only Lester Banks could get away with, he both praises the brilliance of the record while totally ripping it to shreds and making it clear that he loves the music while also making it clear that only a complete narcissist could unleash this on the world. I fully recommend reading this article and really all the Bangs articles about Reed, but highlights include Bangs explaining how metal machine music, amongst other things, is the true embodiment of feedback, a cure for hangovers, a guaranteed lease breaker, the musical equivalent of Jaws or The Exorcist, the single favorite album of Spud, Bangs's Hermit Crab, Lou's Soul, and the greatest record ever made in the history of of the human eardrum. Beyond the aftershock of its release, it is rumored that labels would put metal machine music clauses into contracts to prevent artists from putting out music that doesn't sound like them. We've covered stories about Neil Young getting sued by Geffen for this very reason. Amazingly, the damage with Lou's own record label was not irreparable. Though many thought this would be Reed's last album, and for a year, he says, nobody would let him near a studio. RCA eventually relented to let him try again, resulting in Coney Island Baby, which is about as far from metal machine music as you could get, complete with doo-wop, humor, and sensitivity. And songs. 
all of which would have been crushed into ash by the furor of Metal Machine Music. Lou's career continued, few copies of Metal Machine Music remained in the wild, and it never made the jump to CD, at least not until the late 90s. People ignored it or forgot about it and dismissed it on principle. The record became more lore than anything else, and cemented its status as the most discussed, least listened to record in Lou's catalog. Well, until that Metallica record. However, a funny thing happened. As the boundaries of rock music continued to expand and the walls between art, performance, and music started to crumble, a new appreciation for the record began to grow. There's a picture of a barely pubescent Thurston Moore hanging onto a record as a boy might coddle the Torah at his bar mitzvah. Noise for noise's sake became more and more appreciated. Sonic Youth were definitely at the forefront of that noisy noise, but others joined in on the chaos. Japanese experimental music like Mertzbo created a context and purpose for brutal noise in popular music. Neil Young released Arc, which is a collage of distortion, feedback, drums, and vocals rather than put-together songs. Even the atonal drone metal of Earth or Sun O seems to have drawn some inspiration from its tuneless feedback ancestor, a legacy of abandoning melody and rhythm and predictability for something less polished and more challenging. Metal machine music has never had a renaissance or revitalization. More like people, some people, were able to see it as actual music and not as a prank or assault or hissy fit. I truly believe Lou always at least half-believed in what he was doing. I think this is proven by his interest in reinvigorating metal machine music and allowing a remastering of the record in the 90s and participating in a classical revisioning by contemporary composer Ulrich Krieger and Zeke Krotzker. Krieger, primarily a saxophonist, actually transcribed the record, making notations of harmonics to be made by the analog instruments. The interpretation of the record is pretty startling and oddly beautiful. In a sense, it's all a confirmation of what I decided a long time ago. Metal Machine Music is the greatest worst record of all time. Because it is a great record hidden amongst so many other things. I no longer feel pain when I listen to it like I used to. Quite the contrary, it makes me feel serene, calm, and sleepy even. No constructs form in my mind. Once I am past expecting something from music, I think I can finally enjoy it for what it is. Jim O'Rourke is a musician whose name isn't anywhere near as recognized as his work. He started out in Chicago in the early 90s, playing in a band called Illusion of Safety, before teaming up with former member of the band Squirrelbait and Bastro, David Grubbs, to form Gaster Del Sol. The latter is one of the best bands of the 90s. 
O'Rourke left Gaster del Sol to focus on solo work and producing and mixing albums for the likes of Joanna Newsom, Wilco, Sonic Youth, Smog, Stereolab, Superchunk, John Fahey, and many others. When Sonic Youth started sounding really worn out in the late 90s, it was O'Rourke who seemed to bring them back from the dead in 2000, working with them on New York City Ghosts and Flowers, and even joining the band for a few years. O'Rourke is also responsible for a lot of how Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot sounds, having mixed the album, and also introduced Glenn Kochke to Jeff Tweedy. O'Rourke's solo output is experimental and accessible, depending on the album, and some of his albums have taken him nearly decades to complete. Outright overt messaging is not something Jim O'Rourke will ever be accused of, at least in terms of his solo material. According to O'Rourke, when a piece is completed, he moves on, never looking back to even listen to it again. He takes those things he was able to learn through the process of creating the work and move along to his next project. His goal isn't to leave the lasting imprint. He's fine with his work becoming dust upon his ultimate exit. There does appear to be an exception, however, to this construct, and it's his single-song album from 2006 called The Visitor. It's this album that he brings up time and time again that he hopes resonates with people in a way that other pieces of art have resonated with him throughout his life, saying, That's the one I probably feel the most least uncomfortable about. That one got really close to what I wanted to do. People are often compared only with their potential, which is seemingly unknowable. Well, the visitor would be what I imagine Jim O'Rourke's fully realized potential is. This is the culmination of all of the movies he's watched and heard, along with all of the books he's read and all of the albums he's ever loved, placed precariously on top of and within each other, producing a single 38-minute memoir and heirloom. There are no vocals on the album, which led O'Rourke to believe that the album would be a huge disappointment to his fans. He plays every instrument on the record, and because of the sound he was determined to create, he had to learn how to play some instruments so that the sound would be as close to what he wanted as possible. It took him a year to learn how to play the trombone well enough that it could be part of the finished album. There are recurring melodies cleaving the album together and nods to classical music movements that ebb and flow throughout, reaching crescendos and then washing away while a new wave of sound rolls in. There are roughly 200 tracks of instruments on the album, and even though it jumps from one style to another in an instant, the sound is fluid and flawless. It's the sound of somebody approaching catharsis.
The Visitor is named after the album that David Bowie's character and the man who fell to earth was producing at the end of the film. In that movie, it was intended to be messages back to his home planet. That album was never heard in the film. Bowie submitted an unfinished soundtrack with the help of Paul Buckmaster to Nick Rogue, but the director turned it down, opting instead for John Philip's Americana pastiche of vomit, which nearly ruins the film. O'Rourke was inspired by that album that never was, and its message that was cast out to a distant home from a land of the unknown and unfamiliar. In interviews from around the time of the visitor's release, O'Rourke speaks some about why he chose the format of a single-song album, as well as why it was originally released only in physical form, vinyl or CD, and not digitally. It all has to do with who is now in control of the context of the piece and whether it's even possible for the context to be an option at all, saying, it doesn't matter what you do, somebody's going to change the context of it. O'Rourke is trying to reclaim some control over how the album is experienced by the listener. I think in his choosing to not have it as an MP3, it really kind of works in favor of holding it all together and making it a a single entity that you have to focus on. There's something about MP3 that makes it secondary music to me. And I think that comes up in some of the interviews that I read around this time, where he was talking about digital music just not being paid attention to as much. It's harder for it to really kind of take over or become the focal point of what you're doing. Out of all the records we talk about and are going to talk about, he's the only one who's really talked about why he chose a single song album format. Most of these people just kind of did it. And sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it it doesn't. He's the only one who tried to articulate why. And I think that says a lot about the record and, and his vision for it. And he seems to have that kind of articulation and vision about his whole career, really. He seems very aware of what he's done and where he's gone and where he plans on going. I don't use the word postmodern because I don't really know what it means, but I think that's what it means, whatever you just said. In 1975, Fela Kuti was not quite the legendary black president that he is known as today. In fact, in many ways, he was an artist searching for an identity and a homeland. For years, he had been perfecting the Afrobeat sound as a fusion of West African highlife, funk, and jazz. The past decade had been a journey for self-discovery, starting with a move back to Nigeria after studying in a London school of music and becoming a fixture in the European club scene. In the late 60s, he toured America, conversing with black nationalists like Malcolm X and Eldridge Cleaver. He dubbed his style Afrobeat as both a response to critics who lamented his embracing of Western styles and as a declaration of the central importance of the African ideals in his music. He changed his band's name to the Nigeria 70 and eventually the Africa 70, and his songs started to have a political bent with strong nationalism. Already one of the most important musicians of the era, he would soon become one of the most important cultural figures of his time. 
The single-track record, Confusion, was Cootie's most blatant and powerful declarations of his disdain for Western hegemony and colonialism. On its surface, Confusion is a song about the chaotic cultural crossroads of his newly adopted hometown of Lagos. In the utter ineptitude and confusion of post-colonial military dictatorship, infrastructure was crumbling and leadership was failing. The lyrics deal directly with the social situation that was spinning out of control in the urban sprawl of roadside markets and traffic jams and the dearth of policemen. Cootie uses three dialects and sings of trading with multitudes of currency as an example of Western influence that has left a society without a true understanding of itself. Fela Kuti elected to deliver this message on a record that contains only this single 25-minute song. The song starts, unlike almost anything in Kuti's catalog, with a strange and ominous free jazz fantasia featuring his electric piano and Tony Allen's drum in some sort of abstract competition. The disconcerting and disorienting sound play right into the mindset of a distant and listless city. As the electric piano and drum rolls eventually find each other and rise together, at the five-minute mark, a striking bass groove starts growling from the track, starting on the more familiar Afrobeat sound, complete with the syncopated rhythms and extended solos of horns. The song lulls the listener into a danceable groove, as if Cootie beckoned the listener away from the confusion for a moment so he could deliver his message. There's the singing. A full 14 minutes into the song, on the second side of the short record, Cootie's pidgin English in a call-and-response style. The first line, like a shot across the bow. When we talk, say confusion, everything out of control. Everything out of control. When everything out of control, he go be Eventually, Kuti and his choirs are crying over and over Pafuka, which is Nigerian slang meaning finished. The horns blast in and out as we are yelled at in different languages, hustled on the streets, stuck in traffic with more people coming from the south, the north, the east, and the west. He attacks the colonial mindset of his fellow Lagosians with lyrics about the rampant focus on money. And as he sings, one white man come, pay them money, oh, he paid them for pounds, dollars, and French money, oh. 
Kuti ends his diatribe with a resigned chant. When everything out of control, he go say he pafuka. The song fades out with the same ghostly interaction of the drums and electric piano, abruptly stopping, ending Cootie's rapture over the listener. The record was released by EMI in 1975, and its cult has grown ever since, with it being hailed as cosmic Afrofuturism, an epic Afrobeat masterpiece, Cootie's finest lyrical achievement, and the start of Cootie's highly potent political era that is best exemplified in 1977's Zombie. As a singular piece of work, Confusion is a manifestation of the power of energy and groove, taking time to ensnare the listener, capturing their attention and forcing a reckoning with the substance of the song. I saw an interview with uh, Chuck D. from Public Enemy, and he talked about how he kept kind of flavor flavor around as kind of a a sweetness to surround the bitter pill of what she was delivering. And I think Fela Kuti uses his kind of Afrobeat, the danceable stuff, at least starting with this record and moving on. He used that kind of, that sweetness of the dancing and stuff to, to really make poignant and pretty deep sentiments about what was going on around him. Most artists do that in a way that's feels sort of forced, and his was just so natural and so good that you start dancing and singing what you're hearing and it takes you a little time to realize what is going on i think the song is an amazing example of that yeah he did a brilliant job of marrying the lyrics with the sound itself In 1981, Manuel Gottsching recorded in a single take an album he titled E2 to E4. E2 to E4 is the most popular opening chess move, but Gottsching also jokes that it's a take on R2-D2. The album was created something for Gottsching to simply play on his Walkman while walking through airports to avoid the garbage they played, and it was finally released in 1984. I can only imagine how bad the music is in German airports that both Eno and Gottsching decided they'd rather just make <laughs> their own. Gottsching is the main artist behind the band Ashra Temple, though the band had other regular members such as Klaus Schultz and Hartmut Inke. Ashra Temple is a band we don't really know all that well, to be honest. They, we read about them. They seem really interesting, really good. We just don't know where to start because there's so much. Um, and Joe, I know, is a big fan of Klaus Schultz. Is that right? I am, yeah. I put, did a lot of stuff with tape loops and organ and piano, and he was really big on early electronic and ambient work. They were more on the kind of electronic end of the krautrock spectrum, as, as I understand it. That's what it sounds like to me, too. They did also have an album with Timothy Leary, who sings on the album. <laughs> I, I would like to hear that, I think. 
He only released a couple of albums under his own name, and E2D4 is the most well-known of those, and probably more well-known than any of the Ashra Temple albums, too. It accidentally became one of the most important and influential electronic albums of all time. The first half of the album is mostly comprised of a pulsing drum machine and synthesizer. of it is nearly interminable, and it goes through the whole album. Very similar in a way to how interminable I find club music and house music to be. <laughs> the second half of the album introduces a more freeform guitar sound into the loop. The song itself lasts just under 60 minutes. It's like if Steve Reich or Philip Glass had made a disco album. <laughs> it would have sounded just like this, if that helps anybody out there. When it was released, Gotching seemed surprised to find out that people were dancing to it. Coming from a krautrock background, Gotching is, was already indoctrinated with the importance of drums in driving songs. This album was the bridge between motoric and dance club thumping, but with a minimalist intensity. The song is most well known for being turned into a deep Latin house song called Sueño Latino. It was also allegedly a huge influence on LCD Sound System's 4533. Gotching, when LCD is brought up, says that they're just a mega mix of his own work. He is not a fan at all. E2D4, at the time of its release, was panned by the critics, but has since become revered, even showing up at number 80 of Pitchfork's 250 Best Albums of the 80s. Now, what did you think of this album? Yes, yeah, so I'm by no means a EDM club music type person. I like the first part of this record a lot. I like the simple kind of two chords coming back and forth, and the synth work is great. It's very, you know, kind of gets you into that trance. It has a strong ambient music type feel, which I like. I will say I did not care for the the guitar. It's very, like, mechanical. It reminds me of, like, smooth jazz guitar at the end, and it just goes on forever. I think as we were kind of putting this together... We were kind of trying to find these single song records that just had a lot of influence and are important and have kind of an interesting story. And I think this, even though this is probably not my favorite, has all all three of these. And I do think it's kind of interesting that this was recorded not for public consumption by him alone, as opposed to <laughs> Lou Reed, who recorded it alone. Also in one take. Yes, yes. So... There's interesting comparisons that kind of come up with this. This The next record we're about to talk about is One Take Two. So I could see how people love it, and I could see how it could be a huge hit if it was, a, you know, 1982, 1983, and there's just not a lot of electronic dance music like this. Yeah, I was actually really into it for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then the rest of it was hard to get through for me. It's just not this kind of music that I really care much for. But I can definitely see how it caught on and, and how it became a big influence. And like I said, the first 10 to 15 minutes I really enjoyed. And I could very easily see falling into that if that was the kind of music I liked. and Just kind of getting sucked in. 
I know originally it was not meant to be club music. It was meant to be his personal music. But as it kind of evolved into club music, you know, I could see how in that context, it's, you know, that groove, that, that nonstop beat is so perfect for that. But in the context of me, like, driving to work, <laughs> it's just not, you it's know. It's funny. I, I listened to it in, in my car. Yeah, that's I, I did too. And I think it just makes me really sad because of the loss of my legs. <laughs> I want to dance but I can't (laughs) because I don't have any legs. E2, E4, Brute. And you actually, E2 to E4, uh, you're a chess aficionado and teacher of chess. I do. That's like the, is that the, like the pawn that's right over the king? The, The pawn in front of the king. And it's just moving him two squares. And it's, it's a classic. Ciphering paint splattered seemingly randomly on a canvas, the observer is tasked with a more active role, forced to assign value, meaning, and even structure to the beautiful chaos they are beholding. Jackson Pollock once justified his action painting drip style by explaining that technique is just a means of arriving at a statement. By revising expectations and accepted practices, Pollock was liberated to create in a fashion free of the chains of the past. There's little doubt that it is no coincidence that Ornette Coleman's 1961 album, Free Jazz, A Collective Improvisation, is adorned with the Jackson Pollock painting, The White Light. A small part of the piece is peeking out of a rectangle cut out from the front cover. As the gatefold is lifted, the full painting cover a substantial portion of the inner jacket is revealed. Stark splashes of color that slash and curve and splatter the inner jacket a perfect visual companion to the music contained within. Free jazz didn't so much rewrite the rules of jazz as it deconstructed them. Collective improvisation in jazz music wasn't a new concept, with early Dixieland ensembles building in multiple freehand solos into their pieces in the first part of the 20th century. Bebop, hardbop, and modal jazz had already been chipping away at the armor of the old guard. In the 40s and 50s, there was lateral progress in jazz, disregarding chord structures, pushing boundaries, using unconventional instruments and playing styles, and introducing a stronger emphasis on the scale of the music rather than the chord structure of the song. It's more than 60 (laughs) unique words in that sentence. (laughs) It's a free jazz sentence. (laughs) Coleman threw the rule book on the fire and gave a name to this nascent form of avant-garde free tonality with the free jazz record. Ornette Coleman was already fairly well known as a nonconformist by the time he was recording his sixth record for Atlantic Records. Just a year earlier, The Shape of Jazz to Come had turned heads for defying long-held traditions. Coleman used a plastic saxophone, which gave an unusual timbre to the sound. He also preached a philosophy of harmonics, which emphasized melody over harmony by embracing improvisation that was a combination of melody, harmony, and movement. He also began to shun instruments like the piano as they tended to be more restrained and harmonic, effectively chaining the soloist to the main theme of the song. 
Shape of Jazz to Come is without argument a classic and a cornerstone of avant-garde jazz, but it couldn't have prepared jazz aficionados for what was to come next. Coleman entered A&R Studios in New York City on December 21, 1960, with not one, but two quartets in tow. The two self-contained quartets each contained two woodwinds and a rhythm section of a drum and a bass. The double quartet recorded the album in a single take. Completely improvised, with the exception of a minor discussion of the order of the solos and some cues from Coleman during the session. There's no overdubs, no edits. The first quartet, which was Coleman's normal band, consisted of Coleman, trumpeter Don Cherry, bassist Scott LaFaro, and drummer Billy Higgins, and they would be played on the left side of the stereo channel. The second quartet, featuring trumpeter Freddie Hubbard, bass clarinetist Eric Dolphy, bassist Charlie Hayden, and drummer Ed Blackwell, came exclusively out of the right channel. Playing simultaneously created a masterful cacophony of sound, a thick, steady rhythm foundation, dissonant solos coming in and out, incongruent fanfares, and brief thematic interludes unconnected in time. This is a style that was completely unique and untested. Of course, there are elements of jazz conventions that each player brought with their instrumental voices and style, mostly because they were breaking such new ground that there was no frame of reference. To ears today, this album sounds perhaps more accessible than you might imagine. The instruments played in turn with leading dialogues and backing refutations. The quartets created an atmosphere that, in a sense, would both support and oppose the other quartet. The structure was more a gelatinous sack of jellyfish than a backbone. It was held together, but fluidly, not solidly. The album, like many we've talked about today, was not well-received. One of the biggest controversies was the running time. A single song sprawled over two sides of a single record that was, in essence, a single take. Clocking in at 40 minutes, Free Jazz was the longest recorded continuous jazz performance at the time of its release. Just as the sound had to be torn down and restructured, so too did the medium of the jazz record need to be altered to accommodate a new sound that needed more space and more time to be fully realized. The results were, predictably, polarizing. In a 1962 issue of Downbeat magazine, the double quartet improvisation was granted a double review. Clever. The first reviewer gave it five stars. The second reviewer, no stars. Some critics felt that technique was placed on the chopping block. Others simply hated that the regular meters and frameworks they had become so used to were abandoned with such aggression, glee, and passion. Ornette Coleman was never comfortable with his album, his style, and his persona being the face of this new style of free jazz. 
He didn't like that the composition aspect of the music was so widely disregarded. Despite this protest, the influence of this record was incalculable in changing the acceptance of what jazz could be. In a matter of a few years, free jazz would be embraced by many of the most important jazz artists and avant-garde musicians. John Coltrane would release Ascension. Albert Eiler would release Spiritual Unity. Cecil Taylor would release Unit Structures, and Sun Ra would launch an invasion against all Earthlings with his cosmic jazz, like an attack from Mars. The free jazz record was a shining beacon that attracted those who knew that freedom must be practiced, not proclaimed. So what did you think of this album? Had you heard it before? Yeah, I'd listened to most of Ornette Coleman's stuff, and and I, I like him a lot. I think when we were looking at records to do, we thought about kind of free jazz records because they are a starting point for using space of an album, drawing out themes and songs and lines. And so I think we talked about, you know, maybe doing Ascension by Coltrane because it's more well-known for sure. And it's a bigger band, so it's a little bit squawkier and crazier. I think the thing that really surprised me is how kind of timid and calm this record sounds. It's not bad. It's kind of nice, actually. Um, It's definitely a free jazz record. But I think people have pushed that boundary so far, going back to the early 60s when it was sort of a novel idea and people weren't doing it. It has come a long way. It doesn't make that any less important. I mean, it probably makes it more important. I think that's the thing that surprised me the most about it. When new things happen in music, uh, like the, like free jazz or like punk, they seem so kind of brutal to the ears at the time. And then 20, 30, 50 years later, they sound very tame because of how much influence they had over what we then listened to. And it pushed what was even stranger and more revolutionary further to the edge. And I think it's also interesting that you can draw a line from this album as, you know, Lou Reed cited Coleman as one of his influences when he was thinking about metal machine music, that you can kind of draw a line to Lou Reed. And then from Lou Reed's droning stuff, you can draw lines to later albums, especially one we'll talk about here in a minute. But it's funny that how the influence of this spilled over into rock and roll. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. In the late 70s, William Basinski started recording the sounds of his surroundings using cassette recorders. First, it was when he lived in San Francisco, where he says he captured the clicking of electric buses, the grasshopper legs, and the trolleys creaking. It was these recordings which continued on for years that is what he uses to create many of his most inventive works. Basinski moved to New York in 1980, and he continued to find loose sounds from his environment, just floating around him, and pulled them into his various recorders. He would work with them, creating loops and melding them together into strange new sounds. He had hundreds of them, and he organized them by hanging the tape itself from a tree branch in his workspace. Originally, he had no intention of ever playing any of these loops. They were simply ideas for him to work from. 
1989, that changed. By then, he was living in a loft in Williamsburg named Arcadia, and it was a place where artists would gather, and Basinski's tape loops would play on occasion. Then, in 2001, Basinski started going through old tape loops with the intent of transferring them for archival purposes. Many of these had been stored and were unused for decades, and as they began playing, they also began to disintegrate. One morning, as he was playing the eroding sounds, he turned the loops up as loud as they could go and went to the roof of his loft, where he was witness to a giant cloud of smoke in Manhattan. Basinki located his video camera and recorded the scene of Lower Manhattan crumbling while the sounds of rotting tape loops decomposed below. Basinski himself described it as the soundtrack to the end of the world. The disintegration loops were released in four volumes in 2002 and 2003 and is forever woven to September 11, 2001. It's impossible for me to listen to it as anything else because its origin story is so well known. Would I have thought that the album was so sad and devastating if I didn't know how it came to be? I think so, maybe. It swells like a cobbled-together ship being sent adrift, only to find it can't complete its voyage. Its melody is everlasting, until it isn't. The loop will forever stay lodged in your head after hearing it. It's an earworm from the most unlikely of sources. The disintegration loops are five hours of tape loops that were originally little snippets of sounds, maybe five to ten seconds each. Part one, called DLP 1.1, was originally the sound of a trumpet devolving at a nearly imperceptible rate into nothing that sounds like a trumpet at all anymore. Here's how the track begins. Just a few seconds looped over and over. And now here's how it ends. The journey from the former to the latter is intense and personal. It's also intense and universal. Brian Eno famously stated that ambient music should be as ignorable as it is interesting. Bazinski's version of ambient music is impossible to ignore, but always fascinating. This isn't music that would be satisfied being played quietly in the background. It demands attention. It's the only confrontational ambient piece I've ever listened to. It's an album that rewards the listener for their attentiveness. Each listen provides more information and more emotion. Again, I think this one's kind of interesting because, again, it's using the medium as part of the music, as the tapes, and they're recording, and they're, and they're falling apart, and the sound is changing. It just can't be taken out of the place it was made, or how it was made. Fela Kuti was using uh, political ideas that were current and of the moment, though they still uh, reverberate today, whereas this was of a specific day in time that everybody seems to know very well. So it's you can't take it out of that, but it it should always work no matter how you how you listen to it or when you listen to it and i think it because it's so connected to that event and that event is so connected to americans our age i think it became more than what it would have been and 
it seems like he kind of resents it now or doesn't want to talk about it anymore. He's very tired of answering the question, how did this get made? Because he's answered it a thousand times. And his answer is basically a disintegration loop in in and of itself. I think ambient music, at least I listen to it a lot of times to just kind of fill the space. And I don't want any emotion attached to it. In fact, when I've gone through hard times in my life, I'll, I'll stop listening to music with words. doesn't matter what it is. I just don't want words. I just want sound. It's very true that this is so emotionally weighted that it's, it's not like most ambient music. It seems like a lot of ambient music is trying to replace a fairly natural environment, environmental sound, and become that environment or kind of reflect back to you, whereas this one is taking over and it is its own environment. So it's just sort of usurping the, the environment that is around you and just blacking it out. I think we bent the rules a little bit on this because it's like, what, five records or four or five yes. records? And there's different parts and they're different loops, but I, th- I think it felt like it fit in. And that first loop is over an hour, so it's both sides of a record. Yes. wonder whether the album Dope Smoker is the greatest joke ever perpetrated by a rock band. The story of the making of the album can legitimately be read as a tragic tale of epic struggle for artistic freedom, or a slow burn meme turned comedic masterwork. It really depends on your interpretation. It's either a triumph of an independent artist that took daunting four years to record, battles with several record labels and a decade further to finally have the album released as the band intended it, well, in the meantime, causing a disillusion of the band and at least one member to quit music temporarily. Or the other perspective, which is that it's a band of stoner metalheads smoking out four years to record an hour-long, single-riff dirge about bong monks traveling across the desert to find a green-fogged promised land while spending six figures on amplifiers and, well, weed to ultimately have the record shelved. Both interpretations are perfectly accurate, And neither really matters, because what is left after the haze lifted is one of the most damned lovable records of any genre, let alone stoner metal. California doom metal power trio Sleep was making major waves in the metal scene by the early 90s. After a formidable rookie effort in Volume 1, their second record, 1992's Sleep's Holy Mountain, brought the band critical success and an interest from major labels. After a year of wrangling control away from independent label Earache Records, Sleep was signed by London Records. 
more used to acts like ZZ Top and the Rolling Stones, Sleep was the first metal band that the label had ever signed and were given the promise of total artistic freedom and a signing bonus that was rumored to be over $100,000. The band had even informed the label that they were interested in releasing a single-song album, which the label either didn't believe or didn't understand or didn't have any intention of releasing. Stepping back a couple years while Sleep was touring for Holy Mountain playing shows with Cathedral and Hawkwind, they started kicking around a funny idea. Vocalist, bassist Al Cisneros, drummer Chris Hackius, and shirt-adverse guitarist Matt Pike had been developing a song based upon a riff they made that was influenced by Indian music scales. At sound checks and hotel rooms, they would find that the song had a hypnotizing quality and had lent itself to a slow, extended performance. The band said that the song felt like it was never supposed to stop. Also during this time, and probably all the time before and after this time, the band was indulging in quite a bit of marijuana. Naturally, lyrical elements of the, of the song mixed mysticism, pilgrimage, and ganja seemed to be exhaled effortlessly. So when the opportunity arose to get paid real money to record this magnum opus, Sleep jumped at the chance. Like many details in the story, things get a bit hazy, but reports were that the huge advance in contract was spent on either paying off debts or more likely on drugs and custom-made green amplifiers. So a lot like the Happy Mondays did with their money from factory records, you know, except that there were green amplifiers left over when all the drugs were consumed. (laughs) When the recording actually began, by all accounts, it was an arduous experience. Despite the song being based on a single riff, There was so much timing, so much writing and rewriting, so much memorization, and so much precision. The process made even more complicated by the fact that reel-to-reel tapes were being used that only held about 22 minutes worth of sound. And of course, the copious drug use. That probably slowed down the process a tad, too. It took several months of recording, but Sleep was able to present their foggy vision to London in 1995. The legend is that the master was delivered in a skull bone, Mac Pike said that that didn't happen, but it would have been a good idea. London didn't know what to do with what they heard. 63 minutes of the heaviest, sludgiest, least friendly radio music ever committed to tape. All with lyrics that vaguely were about a holy land and blatantly about weed. The A&R man who signed the band had been transferred and wasn't advocating for them anymore. London could conceivably have thought that the stoner metal songs like Sleep It Had on the first two records had some fiscal relevance in the post-grunge world, but this was unreleasable in their minds. So, they refused to release it. A standoff ensued, which eventually led to Sleep disbanding in 1997. A couple years after that, London brought in a different producer who remixed, and cut up, and neutered the record, and an imprint of London released some promo copies under the name Jerusalem, but then they cut sleep altogether from their label. The album was more or less left for dead by both the label and the band. Just a long-lost album. But as the legend of the record grew, so too did the demand to hear it. Eventually, there were several unauthorized releases of different versions of the record. In 2003, there was a band-approved release that correctly changed the name back to Dope Smoker from Jerusalem. 
The album was finally finding its way to the ears, who recognized the album to be a touchstone for stoner metal and one of the most intense listening experiences. All sorts of people were getting the munchies to hear this bizarre 63-minute song about weed pilgrims in search of the riff-filled lands. Finally, in 2013, Southern Lord gave the record a proper reissue that ultimately matched the band's initial intentions for the record. Much like the Weedians heading to Holy Mountain with bales of herbs tied to their beasts, listening to Dope Smoker is a blunt and harrowing journey, but a rewarding one time and time again. Matt Pike tuned his guitar down two full steps to see to attain the deepest murmuring buzz. Guitar tracks were recorded sometimes three times over with amps that couldn't exist in the same room lest the eight microphones set up to record each individual amp squeal and die in terror. According to the count of New York Times reviewer David Rees, the riff is repeated a mere 1,818 times. Not one puff is wasted. The deafening riff grinds you into a gravity bong of submission as you stagger and lumber along the eight-minute mark when Cisneros mercifully breaks the tension with the song's thesis statement presented in his evil growl. Drop out of life with bong in hand, follow the smoke toward the riff-filled land. drums drive the track, coming in and out, as much a lead as the guitar and bass. Well, at least until the face-melting solos start. And while the song trudges along, it never seems boring. Monolithic, perhaps. Well-crafted time changes and instrumentation change-ups circle around you like vultures, ensuring you don't forget to just keep going. Bloodshot eye incantations make the droning lyrics about dank buds and sticky nugs as darkly iconic and sanctified religious idolatry with lines like, Lungsmen unearth the creed of Hashishian, procession of the weed priest to cross the sands, Desert Legion smoke covenant is complete. In the final 10 minutes, the song seems like it could fall apart at any moment, collapsing under its own weight. The bong shattered. Or perhaps your resolution as a listener is failing you. Atrophied listening. The winds of the song carry through you. You've lost all bodily control. Glad to give it over. To be in the whirlwind of dope smoker. In the end, sleep found the acclaim they deserve. A single track that embodies what they were and what they are and what they could be. Or they got the laugh they wanted. 
Fortunately, it is a joke worthy of which to be made at your expense. There is something about this record, and it's probably all the craziness behind it, and that it's it's probably that it's an hour-long metal record based on one riff about smoking weed, but people just love it. It's weird. Yeah. I remember I was talking to a record store owner, and somehow we got to talking about sleep, and he says, I probably sell a copy of that record two times a week. He said that, like, a yoga store owner came in, and basically he kind of talked to her about it and, and got her to buy it, and then, like, all her yoga participants would come in later because she would play it during yoga, and it's just like everybody, even if you're not into metal at all, just seemed to love this record. It's really hard to not like it. I wasn't, when we put this all together and came up with the list that we wanted to cover, I thought, okay, I'll listen to that one and just sort of ho-hum. I've never really thought it was all that special, but it really is. It's really good. It is. The riff is great. The one thing about all these records is they, they take their time and they kind of reward that gradual rolling out. And this one is is maybe the best out of all of them at waiting till it just, comes together and it's just an amazing blast of sound. These seven album length songs prove the power of expanse. Song structure is simultaneously less important and more important. Given enough time and space, listeners evolve rather than the songs evolving. Ends and beginnings all get muted and washed away. The concept of a song is built and torn down in excess, providing a stage for the artist quintessence. Certainly, the seven songs we discussed are just a scratch of the surface of one-track albums with jazz, experimental, prog, and metal genres, particularly embracing this form of medium. However, these seven elevate themselves as musical testaments to the power of a single song. For researching this episode, Joe and I made a pact that we would sit and listen to every record in totality, and particularly wanted to kind of discuss the listening experience, which we've done throughout the episode. Did you listen to any of these on vinyl? Yeah, I listened to Dope Smoker and Metal Machine Music on vinyl. Okay, are those the only two that you have on vinyl of these? Yes, yes. Though, after hearing the Gemma Rourke, I would really like to get that, I think. Yeah, that's that one is really good. So, Metal Machine Music's the only one I have on vinyl, so I did that one on vinyl. If the... William Pazinski, if just that first volume is available on vinyl and it's not as much as getting the whole thing, which is in the hundreds of dollars, I would get that too. Those are probably my two favorite too. The Fela's great, but I have some of that on vinyl. That stuff tends to be kind of expensive. Was this the first time listening to any of these albums for you? Definitely E2 to E4. You know, I'd never heard that Jim O'Rourke before. I've heard some Jim O'Rourke, but I'd never listened to that record in particular. And that was the first one after we kind of discussed this and planned it out. That was the first one I listened to. And it was really it was really a moving listening experience. It's really wonderful. And it was late. It was probably like one in the morning. I was just just stayed up to listen to it. That's all I did. You know, just sat in the dark and listened to it. It's quiet and it moves fast. It goes from one one part to another very quickly, but they're connected and they're smooth, so it's not jarring at all. Yeah, he has really has impeccable sensibilities. Like, he can play pop music as well as anybody can play pop music, and that's really shown on a couple of his albums before this where he sings, and they're 
really wonderful, and then he can also be incredibly experimental while not being off-putting. He's really good at bringing the listener in and making changes that will kind of push them towards exploring things that they haven't tried exploring before without them even really realizing it until it's already upon them. Some of his guitar playing is very, you know, kind of like American primitive guitar playing. It's just so gorgeous and lush, but he doesn't he doesn't rely on it too much, and I kind of appreciate that. I could see somebody doing this record and just making it kind of like a John Fahey when he brought in a bunch of instrumentation, and it just kind of gets too weighty. With all the different instruments, nothing seemed too heavy. It's like a Van Dyke Parks, John Fahey, without those personalities. It's a lot more friendly. Yes. <laughs> more welcoming. Yes. Those are the ones I hadn't heard before. The Basinski, I don't know if I've ever sat and listened to it with the intention of listening to it. We talked about this a little bit, but it was way more emotional than I think I was expecting. I'd heard bits and pieces of it. I'd never heard it all put together as one thing, and it really changes it a lot. When it is what you are focused on, it really just goes to another level. When we lay them all out and we think about them, we kind of arranged them in a, way, in a way we thought would be interesting. We didn't put them, you know, chronologically or anything, but you can kind of see these two threads of one being unstructured and the other one being completely closed systems, looped and repeated. Putting those two together it really made it kind of an interesting dichotomy. And, you know, some were able to bring it together, you know, like sleep, you know, you've got that single riff. And it repeats and it repeats, but at times it just feels like it's getting out of control. The guitars and all the sounds are crunching together. It feels like it's just rolling and rolling like a snowball picking up so much steam that even though it's it's following the pattern, it's just getting faster than what you expected. Yeah, it's weird how some of them, I think it was three of them, were recorded in one take with no overdubs or anything. And then something like... I'm sure Dope Smoker is probably like this too, but with the Jim O'Rourke one, that one took him six years, I think, to make. And then other ones are just as good with one single take. Yeah. So, I don't know. It was, it was fun to kind of pull apart the patterns and try to listen to those seven records all in one week. And it's, you know, it's not easy. You know, they're pretty intense records. It's never easy to listen to metal machine music. It's getting easier, I think. I don't think metal machine music is really affected by this, but like the Ornette Coleman is, as you're getting halfway through, do you think it, on vinyl, do you think it kind of takes away having to get up and flip the record? Would it be better for for something like that to not be on vinyl? I don't know if I can ever say something is better to not be on vinyl, but it does stop it, and it seems mostly to be kind of unnatural. Yeah, it's almost like it's invading the song like it's it's like an intermission or a, like a a youtube ad popping up i do think that there's probably something to be said for the digital mediums where there's more than enough sound where you can get it all on one in one sitting i do think that probably helps i don't think it takes away so much that it loses its essence but i definitely think that it does create an unnecessary pause which one do you think would have been most noticeable at breaking it up? 
I think dope smoker is kind of weird. Like you're rolling and rolling and rolling and all of a sudden it stops and then you just put it back on. It's just again, metal machine music. It doesn't matter. Like you said, I didn't listen. I listened to Ornette Coleman as one track, so I couldn't really tell you. And I think probably manual gotching, probably it would affect because if it's, it's almost like you'd need two copies if you were a DJ at the club to keep it going without that break in the middle, you know, you'd, you need one on a one on B to keep it going. This is one of those episodes I really enjoyed doing from our end. Cause I like the research and I like the listening and I like being able to give a little bit more opinion and try to make connections where maybe there are none, but that that's something I always seem to enjoy. But I think, and certainly we want to hear from fans if you know, which, which single, song records do we miss you know which are more important than the seven we picked i guess with that said it's time to play uh some of our songs we're going to make this guarantee that we did not pick album (laughs) album length songs to play I'm going to start our song section off with a song by a band called Psychic Ills, and the name of the song is I Don't Mind.
All right, that was I Don't Mind by Psychic Ills from their album Inner Journey Out, which came out about four years ago, 2016, on Sacred Bones Records. And you may recognize the voice of their one of the singers, is Hope Sandoval, from Mazzy Star, or most famously from Mazzy Star. It's an album that I enjoy quite a bit. I think I played it for you the last time you were visiting. We sat out on the backyard and, and played it, and it's, I had never really paid much attention to Psychic Ills before this. I heard that song, and I bought the album right away, and came out on Desert Haze is what the vinyl color is called. So we'll have a picture up of that. Psychic Ills started early in the early 2000s, just a duo at first, and then they added a couple other people. And they eventually got onto Sacred Bones Records, and really, they played a lot with other psych bands like the Warlocks, who were also very good. I like Psychic Gills now that I've, I've heard this album. I went out and got some of their other stuff. I, I like them a lot. I think they're better than the Warlocks. But they had guests on a few of their different albums. They had Neil Michael Haggerty from Royal Trucks did vocals on one of their albums and produced one of their albums. And they had Mazzy Star or Hope Sandoval of Mazzy Star on this one. And I think it's really kind of a lovely psych song. It's hadn't heard it in a while, so I thought I'd pull it out and play it. It's kind of funny you picked that one. I'm going to tell a little story before I play my song. The other day I texted Joe and I said, I think I accidentally killed the guy from Rain Parade. <laughs> he said, what? <laughs> I don't know what inspired me, but I really liked the Rain Parade record, Emergency Third Rail Power Trip. Great. When I was in college. Yeah, it's a great record. I'm going to play a song from him in a second. I had an Amazon gift card, which I don't usually buy stuff from Amazon, but somebody gave me a gift card to spend on myself. That was my stuff. So I said, well, I'll go ahead and get a record. They had this. It was relatively cheap. And I just was browsing and I saw, I said, oh man, I used to love that record. So I buy it and it's here like two days later, whatever Amazon does. So I play it and I post a picture of it on our Instagram and it's just, just great experience. When I wake up the next morning and I'm getting ready for work or whatever, I check my Instagram and somebody said such a bummer about David. And so I look the news and sure enough, he died that same day or night that I played the record. And like, I don't know why I was drawn to, to get that, but I did. This is one hour, one half ago uh, by Rain Parade.
right. That was Rain Parade one hour, one half ago. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about them. They're they're great. They were the most psychedelic of the Paisley Underground bands from the early 80s. They kind of sound like what college rockers play in Birds and Love and, you know, the softer parts of the Velvets. Just my style music. The whole album's great. I really like that song. And the David Roback guy left Rain Parade to form Opal, which is also fantastic, and then he left to form Mazzy Star, which is the connection to Joe's song, which we did not plan, and I'm very sorry if I had anything to do with your demise, David. I really didn't mean that. So I said, apparently whoever I'm playing is dying, and then you said, well, go ahead and spin Glass Houses by Billy Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Let me play my my second song is called Turtle Dove and it's by Kubi and the Rats. Kubi and the Rats with uh, Turtle Dove. It was a single released in 1974 on Good Ear. Uh, the single was reissued by a label called Just Add Water in 2018. And it's just just a fantastic junk shop glam song. Uh, the David Kubinick guy, who's the Kubi of Kubi and the Rats, he had a long and strange career of riding waves and rock and roll. He was part of the post-British invasion-type bands, several of them, but most notably with a band called The World of Oz, and they had a psych-pop hit with Muffin Man. You know that song, Joe? Do you know The Muffin Man, that one? No, it's, it's I mean, it's sort of like that, but more psyche. No, I don't think I do. 
So he he jumped on that, and then he left them and recorded with a prog band called Main Horse Airline, which is a pretty good name. That didn't really go anywhere, so finally he uh, signed with Goodyear Label and released the single Turtle Dove. And it was pretty brilliant T-Rex ripoff that somewhere I read that Bowen heard it and he said he wished he wrote it, but that doesn't sound like him, so who knows. Anyways, the Goodyear label's distribution was through Pi Records and it was notorious, notoriously bad, so the record just kind of died. And Kubinick would eventually record a few more records. One was actually produced by John Cale. So he's got a bit of a cult following and his work's slowly getting reissued. Anyways, I do like the single. All right, the last song for tonight is a song called Beer, Beer, Bottle of Beer by A.C. Ducey. That was Beer Beer Bottle of Beer by A.C. Ducey, released in 1962 on Warner Brothers Records. And this is a song that I found by going through WFMU and the 365-day project. It is just an incredibly infectious song. I used to be a big collector of songs about drinking, just to see how many I could find on 78 and 45. And I had never heard this one at all, I don't believe, until recently. And as soon as I heard it, I went out went out and got it. Um, I'm also a big fan of Thorough Ravenscroft stuff. <laughs> so this sort of came up because of that initially. So it's a th- almost a Thorough Ravenscroft song about drinking, but it's not really. It's not actually him. I think um, you could scour all of um, 
Apple podcast for the line. I'm a big fan of thorough rain and crop stuff. And this is the first time anybody's ever said that ever. Way to go, Joe. Well, he's Tony the Tiger. <laughs> and the Grinch. But he was a he was a fun singer too. He did a lot of he had a lot of singing stuff. Anyway. This is not actually him, even though it sounds a lot like him. <laughs> I, it's not actually him. I just like his style. <laughs> I just love that style. <laughs> it's, it's great. In the 50s, some production changed in records, and they were trying to do different things with records. So they would start, they altered voices as far as how the speed of them. So one of the first examples was when a guy named Ross Bagdasierian, Bagdasierian, something like that, you know him as David Seville, had a huge hit with Witch Doctor, which is where it sped up. His voice is sped up really fast. And he ended up turning that into the Chipmunks. Now with this one, so it's a really slowed down voice, so that's what makes it obviously sound a lot deeper. But it's it's weird that something could be played this slow and with a with a bass so low with a voice and still be so incredibly peppy. I just absolutely love this song. I have nobody seems to know who AC Ducey is. A lot of people online do say that it's Thurl Ravenscroft, and by a lot, I mean both people that talk about it. <laughs> but it's, it's, I'm talking about it like it's like it's a huge, huge thing. But it should be the controversy of the century. One person def- described this record as amphetamine Dixieland, which is pretty great. Yeah, that's pretty close. Nice, very nice. It's a lot of fun. Super catchy. I can't get it out of my head. If you played this over the disintegration tapes, oh, that would be the perfect <laughs> earworm. Like shooting chipmunks. <laughs> AC Ducey. It sounds like a, a the polka cover band for an ACDC. Anyway, that's it for our songs. Hopefully everybody enjoyed that going out with a with a little style, really. There's our four songs we wish took a whole <laughs> a whole sixty minutes. Okay, let's settle up on some trivia. So, okay, at the beginning of the show, I played, and we're going to play them again. I played ten famous locked grooves, little snippets of them, and you just have to. T- and I told you the years, and you just have to tell me which artist or which album. We're going to listen to them again, and then I'll let you guess. Here we go. Clip one is from 1967. <laughs> Clip two is also from 1967. Clip three is from 1969. Play me again. Play me again. Play me again. Play me again. Clip four, 1970. Clip 5, 1975. Clip 6, 1978. Clip 7, 1979. Clip 8 is from 81. Clip 9 is from 
clip nine is from 1997. And the final clip, clip 10, 2014. All right, we'll see what you got. Number one is the Beatles. That's right. That's the probably the most famous lock groove. That's Sergeant Pepper's. Second one, I don't know. I don't know who that is. That is the Who Sell Out. Oh, okay, okay. And he's saying track records, track records. It's kind of hard to hear, but okay. Track three is the James Gang, Joe Walsh, uh, James Gang, I, and I only knew that because of. The George Peckham episode we did a long time ago. Where that's that's right. That's uh, the album's Your Blues, and then the A side says Turn Me Over, and the B side says Play Me Again. Track four, I don't know. It's Dripping Water. That Dripping Water is from Adam Hart Mother by Pink Floyd. Oh, okay, good one. So pretty pretty famous one yeah. as they go. Track five is Metal Machine Music. That's right, classic. And track six, I don't know. Track six is kind of a weird one. So it's Fozzie Bear. It's throw a raven's crop, isn't it? <laughs> so it's it's the Muppet Show. It's a Muppet Show uh, soundtrack. But there's a skit where Fozzie Bear gets trapped in the like Kermit, you know, locks the doors, turns off the light and locks the doors to the theater. And so Fozzie's just calling for help. And then it's just like, help, help. It's like this weirdest saddest thing <laughs> calls for help forever he's trapped anyways i thought that was a good one okay yeah that is that's something i never would have gotten no no a lot of these are pretty tough all right track seven i don't know either that is i thought you may even have this one that is public image limited metal box i don't have metal box i wish i did uh track eight it said 1981 i think the only thing I could think of or remember around there was Sonic Youth, but I think that was like 1985 or 86, when I the one I was thinking of. So I don't know who that one is. Yeah, I didn't think you'd get this one either. It's kind of famous. Uh, maybe some of our people home listen uh, got it. Um, it is Def Leppard, High and Dry. You're just screaming, no, no, no again. Okay. Okay, okay. This next one... My initial guess was that because it was 1997 and it sounded like something they would do, it, I guess Radiohead, but I don't uh-huh. know if they ever did a locked groove record. So, But I'm going to stick with that as my guess. That is incorrect. Okay. I this is a record we talked about. We talked about it for this show, actually. It's um, Godspeed, You Black Emperor, F-sharp, A-sharp, Infinity. Okay. This, okay. this is the Infinity part. Oh, that's a so, great album. Just a good record. Yeah, yeah, I like that one a lot. And then ten I ten I did not know. You have it. We bought it together. Really? Mm-hmm. What was the year? 2014. It, or I bought it with you with me, and I think you bought it quickly after. There's two locked grooves on it. Is it Jack White? Yes, it's that Lazaretto. Okay. Good. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of other ones. They're hard to find. Like, for some reason, people don't go around recording lock grooves on YouTube for whatever reason. That should be a channel all its own. Oh, I know. I, I, they're kind of, to me, they're fascinating. 
But some of the ones that I wanted to play that I couldn't find, Muskrat Love, the original 45, is apparently the earliest one. Unknown Pleasures apparently has a breaking glass over and over and over. Raining Blood by Slayer has rain. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about doing that one, but the Sonic Youth one you're thinking of is Evolve. Evil. I have that one. Do you have the one with the lock groove? I think I do, yeah. Because we talked about that last time and I checked it, so I believe I do. And then uh, Taking Tiger Mountain apparently has one. And there's Damned Love Story has one. And the Buzzcocks, was it uh, another music in a different kitchen or whatever? That one has one too. I would have liked to play some of those, but I couldn't I couldn't get the lock groove. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I like those a lot. They're really good. All right, we want to cup, mention a couple things before we sign off here. One is that we got really kind of great thing on the website Feedspot. We were listed as one of the top 20 music podcasts to follow this year. So that was really nice of them to say that about our our podcast, and we're very humbled about it. So uh, we're going to link that post, and uh, we put it on social media. But check out some of the other ones there. We're up right up there with uh, Mark Marin and uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones and some stuff like that, Disgraceland. Yeah, there's a, the In Memory of John Peel show is on that list as well. Really good. Yeah. There's some some really, really big famous ones, and there's some some guys like us who are just scrappy. So but we, we appreciate them posting us on their on their list and it's good to know. We've had some some people email us about different things and so it's just great to have some interaction with people. We really appreciate you y'all listening. As always, we wanna thank Pantheon, our podcast network. You know, Pantheon's a collection of podcasts that are focused on bringing you in-depth music, you know, analysis, reviews, humor, comedy, whatever, whatever. There's all sorts of different stuff. One I recent listened to recently is a newer one on the network, but it's great. It's called Rock and Roll Heaven, and they were doing um, basically an episode on the day the music died. They talked about Buddy Holly, and then the next episode they talked about the Big Bopper and Richie Valens, and so... Similar to to us, where they really do a lot of research, you know, better than us, they're able to like pronounce their words and stuff like that. So, yeah, it'd be fun to get them on the show too and go through a turntable talk with them about dead rock stars. We do, we do talk about dead rock stars a lot. There's so many of them, and there will be more. <laughs> Anyways, thank you, Pantheon, and we appreciate all the support. And check out some of the other shows. If you like us, you will definitely like some of the other shows on the network. So check them out. And you can communicate with us and, and send us feedback on anything you want. You can send that to our email address, which is podcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, our handle is at pod. Absolutely. And uh, definitely go out and support some musicians. Buy some records. Uh, go to a local store. Uh, buy some records from bands, go to see a show, just do something to to help the community. Lots of good people who are trying to make a living, you know, bringing us great music, making great music, selling us great music. Uh, a lot of artists out there, you know, who deserve to get paid for their work, and, you know, so do what you can to, to help them out because it's something that matters a lot to us. And if you're listening to this, it, I'm sure it matters a lot to you. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.